Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. And plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is for everlasting, and thine all holy good and life-giving spirit, now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Amen. Okay. Let's pass around a few books. Maybe every other person, or if you don't care. I'm going to try to keep on track. If I can finish a little early today, I'll try because my, my family needs a little bit of attention. But today we're talking about the mystical supper. <clears throat> and uh, I don't want to do too many sidetracks and tangents. Believe it, believe it or not, as early as junior high, my friends called me the king of tangents. The king of tangents. And they weren't talking about math. talking about conversation. Um, and it's easy to do that with such a, a beautiful, rich tradition such as orthodoxy. Because as one of my, um, one of my godchildren, who's, who's a, a biblical scholar, he says, I was looking for a fully orbed tradition. Meaning... You touch one part and you get, you're getting the whole. It, everything connects. It all ties up in the tradition. So you start talking about one thing and it's so easy to connect it with another, then another, and then another story from the lives of the saints and the scripture. And, you know. But uh, I was going to say, has anyone noticed anything peculiar by observing our... Eucharist icon up uh, in the sanctuary. Has anyone noticed who's there at the table next to Christ? There's someone who looks very much like the man on the far left of our iconostasis. Do you know who that is on the far left? Not on the wall, but the furthest door. Who is it? St. Paul. So... In the iconographic tradition, you'll see that certain saints have a distinct look. And St. Paul definitely does. Mostly like male pattern baldness with a little tuft of hair. And then his beard is a certain shape generally. There's usually a, there's a prototype usually that's followed in the iconographic tradition. And then you'll see subtle differences. Well, if you look closely next time, you see the... Uh, when the doors are open of the iconostasis. Take a peek in there. You'll see 12 apostles, but one of the originals is missing and is replaced with someone else. Any guesses about who's missing? Judas, Judas is missing. And who's there then? St. Paul is there. So it's not a historical icon in that way. But it's putting St. Paul in there as one, of the, as one of the apostles. So it's one, of those, it's one of those things that the church can do and get away with. You know. Um, 
And uh, if you ever go to speaking about that, that icon of the Last Supper, this one is generally referred to as the mystical supper rather than the Last Supper because St. Paul was not there at the Last Supper. Um, at the church in Mount Lake Terrace, the Romanian church, called Three Holy Hierarchs, if you take a look at their mystical supper icon, you see the apostles flanking Christ at the, at the table. And then there's a, there's a halo without a head in it. Have you ever seen that? There's a halo without a head and there's someone leaving the room. You can see Judas walking out the doorway. And then it's like he left his silhouette behind. Like he betrayed his personhood. He lost, you know, he, it's, it's a really striking, but also it almost makes you want to cry when you see it. You know, it's very powerful. But uh, anyway, if you ever get to go there, it's a beautiful church. It's, it's pretty big and it's frescoed everywhere. So um, a little, a little uh, side little tangent about the, the mystical supper icon. Okay, so we're going to talk about the mystical supper today, and let's get started on our chapter. So in the Holy Eucharist, we offer to God the substance of our life and receive it back as the body and blood of Christ for the sanctification of our souls and bodies, and as the mystery of the church's unity in Christ. What's another word that we use for mystery? Sacrament. Sacrament. And um, I won't go too far into that, but it's, it's important to realize that, you know, the use of that terminology. When we say mystery, a lot of times we're referring to the rites of the church in which God is doing something, I like to say. The ways, the ways that God is intervening and has and continues to intervene in our life. We provide them the material means that he's already given us. We don't have anything to give other than what we've already been given. And then we offer it to him in return. Usually when you receive a gift, you hold on to it. But in this case, we receive it. We say, before I do anything with it, and this is a model of our, the entirety of our life, will you bless it? Thank you. But first, even before I say thank you, please bless this. Then we receive it for our use, for our benefit, and then we say thank you to God for it. Actually, I like, to, I like to remind people that even when we traditionally, when you have meals in an Orthodox family, the, the meal time follows the pattern of the divine liturgy. When I was growing up, we would always say to God, Dear God, thank you for this food, you know, of which we are about to partake or something like that. Thank you for this food. May it be to our nourishment and to the glory of, you know, your name or something like that. You know, um, in the Orthodox tradition, you have this food set forth. We say the Lord's Prayer, and then we say, O Lord Jesus Christ, bless the food and drink of thy servants. For thou alone art holy, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. Then we receive, and then traditionally, at the conclusion of the meal, like we do at camp. Then we say another prayer. 
We thank thee, O Christ our God, that thou hast satisfied us with thine earthly gifts. We ask God to bless that which we are about to receive, and then we give thanks after having received it. And you see that pattern in the liturgy. It's, the liturgy is really the, whole, the way of life for us. It's, it sets forth um, our MO. So St. Paul once addressed the, the philosophers in Athens, introducing them to the one true God. During his sermon on Mars Hill, quoting one of the Greek poets, he said, In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. I like to say on an existential level that we don't have life apart from being given it. When I came to this realization about life in general, I became really thankful for my mom and my parents. You know, I thought I had, I was one of those modernists who believed that I had life and my life had value kind of in and of itself, even despite my parents, because they're outmoded and outdated and they don't know what they're talking about. And I'm young and fresh and cool. And then I realized, wait, the only reason I have life is because they gave it to me. Maybe I need to like be a little more grateful, give my mom a little more credit. And then on a deeper existential level, I thought about life itself and its meaning and purpose that we do not have. There is nothing that is apart from having been created by God, brought into being. And so you can say then there is nothing that is apart from having been brought into existence by God. And because God is love, God is a God is person. We can say with St. Paul, in him we live and move and have our being. There's nothing of the authentic experience of life that's, that's impersonal. That's not an encounter with the creator. And especially as those created in his image, those rational beings, persons created in his image. When we encounter everything, even the, the world that he made, we encounter him in some way. Because... We see his, you could say, his imprint in all that is made. And this is the way of the Christian life. So St. Nic Nicholas Cavasilus interpreted this in terms of the mysteries of baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist. Live, move, have our being. He saw those three sacraments, baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist. And he says, baptism confers being and, in short, existence, according to Christ. The anointing with chrism, which is the, we talked about chrismation. What is, what is chrismation in a, in a word? Anointing. But what is, what's happening when someone's chrismated? The seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we say. And as we're anointing the head and the eyes and the nostrils, all of the faculties of the person, the ears, the chest, the hands, the feet, we're constantly saying the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the kids are there, especially if they love to go, seal, everyone yells out, seal. It's really fun. So the anointing with the chrism perfects him who has received birth by infusing into him the energy that befits such a life. The Holy Eucharist preserves and continues this life and health since the bread of life enables us to preserve that which has been acquired and to continue in life. In this way, we live in God. We remove our life from this visible world to that world which is not seen by exchanging not the place, but the very life itself. 
and its mood. This is perhaps the most succinct exposition of the mysteries ever written. The mysteries are not merely sacred rites, or you could say like religious hoops that you have to jump through, things that you have to do, you know, in order to, boxes you have to check in order to be an Orthodox Christian. They are nothing less than our participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. Having been united with Christ in baptism and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're led to the Holy Table and partake of the bread of heaven. The Holy Eucharist begins with the offering of bread and wine, which the people of God bring to the church. Bread and wine are the substance of our life, that by which we live in this world. You could say, you know, liquid and solid. There's not much more to the stuff of existence than liquid and solid that God has given us as our sustenance, as our, as our source, as our life in the physical sense. It's important to note that we do not bring grain and grapes, but the fruits of the earth that have been harvested and made by the human intellect, the human you know, ability and effort into bread and wine. So we could have taken the bread and wine and enjoyed them in and of themselves. Look at the work of my hands. You're a great baker. You're an amazing vintner. Nice. Who needs God? You know, which is the temptation that we give into, especially when we enjoy the bread and the wine a little too much, you know. But God gave the world to Adam and Eve as a means of communion with himself. However, they refused this gift and instead made the world into an end in and of itself, which is a lie, a falsehood. By offering the substance of our life to God in love and thanksgiving, we recover the original Eucharistic vocation of the human race. And when we say the word Eucharistic, what are we referring to? Anyone? We're referring to, yeah, the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. And when we're talking about the Eucharistic calling or the vocation. What, what does the word Eucharist mean? Does anyone remember that? Thanksgiving. Means thanksgiving. So the vocation of the human person is to give thanks for what they've received and to do something with it. It's this interchange, this interaction that's constantly happening between God and man, between God and the human race. This offering is possible, however, only because Christ, God made flesh, offered himself upon the cross for the life of the world. There's only one and only one sacrifice. There is one and only one sacrifice. The Eucharist is nothing else than that one sacrifice on the cross. That's why we don't shed blood anymore. And we don't need to go into the, the whole Old Testament practice of sacrifice. Actually, a, a brother priest of the Antiochian Archdiocese just put, a, put out a book on the significance of sacrifice. Have you seen that? Father Jeremy Davis. Pretty good name, Jeremy. Um, and uh, he works with our Archdiocese, and he's, he's, a, he's actually a Hiram monk, a priest monk. He did an interview, too, um, with a guy, a young Protestant guy who has been really, really looking into orthodoxy, but also other versions of, have other expressions of Christianity, but he's been interviewing lots of, uh, of Orthodox people on YouTube. There's a guy who has this YouTube page called Gospel Simplicity. Have you heard of that? 
And actually through him, through he hasn't converted to orthodoxy, but through him and his interviews with a bunch of orthodox priests and monks, a bunch of people have discovered orthodoxy and since found their way home. So he just interviewed Father Jeremy Davis. I haven't watched it yet. So the night he was betrayed, oh, so the Eucharist, sorry, is nothing else than that one sacrifice on the cross. And this is why we don't shed blood anymore, because the perfect and pure blood has been shed. And so from this point on, what we offer is what we call the bloodless sacrifice. Uh, Father, quick question. Yeah. Um, so I noticed in the uh, course of liturgy, mm-hmm. you referred to it as the rational bloodless sacrifice. Yeah. And I was wondering what the word rational means. I know. I asked Father James that once. Rational, what does that mean? And Father James went, I don't know. <laughs> and sometimes that's a good enough answer. You know, I don't know, but I, I do know, actually. Um, it's, uh, it's, if I can, basically the, the root of that word rational, um, let's see if I have my, I'll bring it up on my phone. I want to bring up like a, a version of the Bible that has the Greek. And if you go to Romans 12, not Rim 12, Roman 12. I use an app called Blue Letter Bible app. And it's a Protestant app, but it allows me to have multiple versions side by side. And uh, it says, so Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, brethren, this is a wonderful, if you're getting to know Christianity and how to live the Christian life and what the Christian life is, memorize Romans 12. It's awesome. But chapter, or verse 1 begins, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, it says, reasonable sacrifice. Another translation is rational. And the word is logikin, from which it's drawn from the term logos, actually. And you know who the logos is? Christ. And as those created in the image of God, Christ is Logos, he is the word, the being, you know, the word of God. Well, we're created in his likeness to, to live in such a way as to make a pur- purposeful or reasonable or meaningful offering. And so really what it's a nod to is that the freedom that we have to respond to God reasonably, rationally and, ra- rationally and intentionally um, to make our offering to him which is represented or symbolized in the, the elements, you could say, in the bread and the wine, but actually is the offering of the entire life, which is what St. Paul is talking about in Romans 12.1. He says, so beautifully, you know, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. But tien logikin letrion means like, the, um, the, the rational or logical or, I don't know, reasonable worship. Latrion means worship, not just service. So is, does that help a little bit? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I know I remember asking Father James, and he said, I don't know. And I was like, 
Okay, then I don't need to know right now. So, um, now I don't know where I left off, though. Do you guys know? The Holy Eucharist begins. Is that where we're at? Yeah, well, I'm on a different, you know, I've got it on my computer here, so. Um, Oh, my goodness. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. None other than that one sacrifice on the cross. Yeah. And you ask what our rational, bloodless sacrifices. So the night he was betrayed, Christ ate his last supper with his disciples. He broke the bread and blessed the wine, instructing the apostles, do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 11. The Eucharist is, therefore, an act of remembrance. It orients our life toward the cross. And does anyone, does anyone recall what the significance of that word remembrance is? Anyone remember the Greek word? No? Sienna, you don't? I mean, you would probably be one of the only ones. Maybe Yeah, close. Anamnesis. People say anamnesis. Anamnesis. Which is, which is more than just a historical recollection. But it's, I like, the way I like to say this remembrance is that we're not just recalling something that once happened way back when and we wish we were there. But when we do, when we, when we enact this mystery of the Holy Eucharist, we are participating in that one body and that one blood of Christ, the manifestation of the life of God, which transcends time and space. So it's not like we have liturgy on Sunday and then they have it on Monday. It's just, no, there's only one liturgy and our participation in it is always a participation in that same body and blood of Christ which doesn't just take place at a particular place in a particular time, but it's a manifestation of an eternal reality that we get to participate in. So we, we move outside of the confines. I know it's a little philosophical, but we move outside of the confines of our temporal existence, and everyone who receives and participates in the body and blood of Christ is participating in that very same supper that Christ instituted on Holy Thursday, the disciples. And I know it's a deep teaching, but anomnesis, that remembrance, is not just a historical re recollection, but it's a participation in something that once happened and continues. It carries forward. A lot of times we would think, we had this, in my background, we had this <clears throat> view that the communion wasn't that important because it already happened then that was the one in the real time that it happened and now we're just kind of play acting but the church traditionally authentically has always understood that our participation in the mystery of the holy eucharist is a participation in that same event
that same body, that same blood of Christ that took place at that time, that began there, that made its first manifestation on Holy Thursday, we call it. So more than just a historical recollection. So the New Testament word for remembrance is more than psychological or historical recollection. Anamnesis literally means to represent or make present. In the Holy Eucharist, we do not remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in the same way we recollect a past event in our own lives. Rather, that sacrifice is made present to us and we participate in that sacrifice. There is no doubt that the early Christians understood the Eucharist as a sacrifice. In the first century Syrian church manual called the Didache, we read, on the Lord's day, assemble together and break bread. This is like one of the first well-known, like kind of post-apostolic documents in the church. Um, and you can find it online if you look it up, this Didache. On the Lord's day, it says, assemble together and break bread and give thanks. First, making public confession of your faults, that your sacrifice may be pure, for this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord. In every place and time, offer me a pure sacrifice. Malachi 11. Malachi, yeah, is it 11? There's a typo in my version. Um, We do not offer a new sacrifice, however, but the sacrifice that Christ offered once and for all. For it is thou, Christ, our God, who offereth and art offered, we say in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. He offers and is offered, and we get to participate in it. God the Father receives this offering at our hands, precisely because it is the offering of his Son. From all eternity, the Son receives his being from the Father, and in return, offers himself to his Father in love. On the cross, Christ offered himself to his Father as man, thereby introducing humanity into this dynamic movement of Trinitarian love. Remember, we believe that God is Trinity because we believe, we believe that God is love. First of all, God has revealed himself in this way, and that the only God who could be the God of love is a God that is a, communi- a communion of persons, a communion of persons bearing witness to one another. Constantly bearing witness to each other. There's this coherence of the persons of the Trinity taking place. But out of God's great love for us, as we've talked about, God created us so that we could participate. We could freely participate if we will. See? If we will, if we choose to, we can freely participate in the perfect love of the persons of the Trinity. And if we take this seriously, we understand that by receiving the holy mysteries, by partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we, are, we become initiated into the life of the Trinity. Not just recipients of God's condescension, not just recipients of God coming down and saying, hey, you know, I can, reach, I can reach you where you're at. But Christ himself as the word of God and one of the Trinity is always in communion with the other persons of the Trinity. So to touch Christ is to enter into communion with the pre-eternal and perfect love of God. 
In the Eucharist, our life is offered to the Father in and through Christ, and we receive eternal life in returning, by, in return, by partaking in the life-giving body and blood of the Lord. Verily, verily, I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, says Christ himself in John 6. And so as Orthodox Christians, you know, it's, I would... I say we just take Christ at his word. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Well, I, th- I think I would like to have life in me. So just on a, on a fundamental level, if we were biblical literalists, we would take the, this word of Christ and say, wow, receiving the body and blood of Christ is really important. When Christ spoke these words, many ceased to follow him. Those who remained, however, became partakers of his body and blood. Take, eat, this is my body. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Christ says in Mark 26. In the early years of the Christian era, a problem arose in the Corinthian church concerning the Eucharist. Many treated it shamefully, using it as an excuse for selfishness and division, rather than as a sacrifice of love and unity. Like you imagine people pushing one another out of the way in order to get there first. That would be an abuse or a misunderstanding of what we're trying to do when we are drawing near to the holy mysteries. So St. Paul warned them of the consequences of their actions. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So rather than celebrating the life-giving love of God, they're rendering, rendering themselves guilty of the crucifixion of Christ by perpetuating the sin that led to his death, pushing one another out of the way, you know, forgetting those in need, prioritizing themselves individually over one another. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that, that bread and drink that cup, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There's a lot at stake here, he's saying. And so what is is the last thing that the deacon or the priest says before they come out with the holy mysteries? Does anyone know it? With the fear of God? And faith and love draw near. We don't just say, skip forth and receive what is yours. We say, with the fear of God and faith and love. It's a perfect combination. It keeps us in check. Because we should approach with fear and trembling like Isaiah. You know, before the the angel brought the burning coal to his lips. It's one of my favorite the fathers of the church see that as a, as a foreshadowing of man receiving the body and blood of Christ. Isaiah being touched by the burning coal from the altar to his lips. Woe is me, says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God says, yes, I'm good, but I'm going to touch you anyway. Because what I touch you with will not destroy you if you give yourself over to my love. It will not destroy you, rather it will purify you. 
That's why we approach with fear, but also with faith and love. Thus, according to St. Paul, many have physically died for partaking of the Lord's table unworthily. The reason for this is clear. St. Paul explained, the cup of blessing which we bless is, is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? In partaking of the Eucharist, we're literally partaking of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we say as Orthodox Christians about how do we understand that this bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? What's that? The Holy Spirit accomplishes it. But how do we, can we, can we understand it? Can we comprehend it? It is a mystery. It's the mystery of mysteries. And that's one of the best uses of that term. The mystery itself. Because to encounter it is to encounter the very life of God. And one of my favorite little, little reflections on the holy mysteries comes from St. John Maximovich, who we have on the wall over there. He said when he, when he received the body and blood of Christ, he was so overwhelmed by it that it took him a couple hours to recover every time because he felt like he had the body and blood of Christ coursing through his own veins. How could the life of the uncreated God be coursing through the veins of an uncreated one like me? Most of us are ready for a cup of coffee or something afterward, but you know, but this like you and that's not to say we're all everyone's just shallow and superficial, but this is what we have the ability to become aware of if we enter into that mystery and take it seriously. In the early 2nd century, St. Ignatius wrote of a sect in the church that did not believe that Christ had come in the flesh. They were called the Docetists. He, he noted that they did not attend the Eucharistic gathering of the church. Why? And he writes in his epistle to the Smyrnians, they abstain from Eucharist and prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Carl, when did St. Ignatius live? Uh, Ignatius... He was alive during the time of Christ. Yeah. And so here he is. And you can read the right, and I've told you, many of you several times, you can, this is another thing you can find. You can find the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, and they're priceless, actually. Um, online, you even. You can buy them in um, paper publication. But they're, they're easily accessible. And here he is, this one, right after the time of Christ. And we actually believe the church tradition says that that um, he was the one, the little child who sat on the lap of Christ when Christ was given the teaching about children. Do not prevent the little ones from coming, to, from coming to me. And he said, of such are the kingdom of God. And so we believe that when he, when he reached out to use that little child as his demonstration, you know, that was St. Ignatius. To deny the reality of Christ's humanity is to deny the reality of his presence in the Eucharistic uh, in the Eucharist, sorry. So, to deny the reality of Christ's humanity is to deny the reality of his presence in the Eucharist and vice versa. That's something worth chewing on. Around the year AD 150, again, very close, very close to the time of Christ. You know, 
one generation away, not very far. St. Justin the philosopher, also known as St. Justin Martyr, wrote to the Roman emperor, explaining to him the gospel of Christ and petitioning for an end to, the, to persecution. And so what he was trying to do in this like, defense of the Christian life and faith, his apology, it was called. Um, you know, apology means defense, defense not, uh, not asking for forgiveness. But uh, he's just, he, he gives this re- series of beautiful descriptions of how Christians lived in the early days of Christianity. And he says, we do not receive these gifts as ordinary food or ordinary drink, but as Jesus Christ our Savior was made flesh through the word of God and took flesh and blood for our salvation. In the same way, the food over which thanksgiving has been offered through the prayer of the word which we have from him, the food by which our blood and flesh are nourished through its transformation is, so the, word we, the prayer of the word which we have from him is, we are taught, it is the flesh and blood of Jesus who was made flesh. This is my body. This is my blood. And we take him at his word. The mystery of the Eucharist is therefore truly awesome. By it we receive into our soul and body the body and blood of Christ himself who infuses his divine life into our life. All of this is accomplished through our sacramental participation in his cross. I heard someone uh, uh, say once, when you partake, when you partake of the broken body and spilled blood of Christ, you're, you are also saying that I want to become. You're signing on the dotted line. He revealed his love by becoming broken and spilling forth his very life for us. And we're saying, I want to live such a life. I want to become a broken body and spilled blood for the sake of Christ. Which means I'm not trying to, I'm not in this for self-preservation, another way of putting it. It's a canonic, it's a, you know, going forth from oneself, a self-emptying that happens. Something else happens during the mystery. However, we remember not only the sacrifice of the cross, which took place once and for all, almost 2,000 years ago, we also remember the future. Mm. How can you remember the future? Good question. In the liturgy, between the words of the institution, this is my body, and the epiclesis, which is the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the priest prays, remembering this saving commandment, which was the commandment for Christ to do this in remembrance of me. So remembering this saving commandment and all that has come to pass for us, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, we're remembering all of these things, the ascension into heaven, the sitting at the right hand, and the second and glorious coming. Somehow we're remembering that which has not yet been accomplished, at least on our timeline. Thus, in the liturgy, we remember the second coming of Christ, which obviously is yet to happen. We've said that the Holy Spirit is the pledge of the kingdom to come. This is the action of the Spirit that makes the sacrifice of Christ present to us that transforms the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and that makes present the future kingdom. So we become participants in that which is to come. 
which is the, you know, you could say the, uh, the original, the destiny of all that was created by God. At the Last Supper, our Lord told the apostles, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26. And St. Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth of the Lord's death till he come. 1 Corinthians 11. It's clear that from the very beginning, the Eucharist was oriented toward both the cross and the coming kingdom. The fact that the Eucharist is our sacramental participation in the great wedding feast of the kingdom underscores one other aspect of the mystery. The Eucharist is given not only for our personal sanctification, but as the sacrament of the church's unity. And this is an incredibly profound teaching, and we, need, we all need to seek to fulfill the implication of this. And I, I think one, you know, the, among the greatest tragedies, if I think I would say the greatest tragedy on this side of eternity, you know, after the fall and after the accomplishment of our salvation, the, the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, the perfect revelation of God's love, then those people who claim to understand his love, to have received his love, they turn against one another. And irony doesn't even, doesn't even do justice to the great tragedy that that is. That these, all, all of these people, Christians, who are claiming to be united by this one Christ, break into different sects and different groups. And we rationalize it, saying somehow we're all one, but we're not. We don't agree. Otherwise, we'd be meeting in the same places and we'd be in communion with one another. You know, the great schism, which is not so great because it's wonderful, but because of how terrible it was, you know, in the 11th century. And, and then, you know, the Reformation was another kind of great schism in the West. And the consequent just... I don't know, um, continue, continual breaking up of Christians. There's just we're like, especially in the West, you know, we're like all schismatics. We are. I mean, you know, you just, you don't, you don't, you want to, we all want to create Christ in our own image rather than being conformed to his image. And, but one of the tricky things that I always like to remind people about is that um, a lot of times it's done out of ignorance. And even, even in that mistake and even in that tragedy, um, we can see, like we could at least honor the intention, the desire of the people who are seeking something good. They're seeking, they're seeking something better than what they had at least, especially people who are fleeing from corruption you know, or fleeing from unhealthy, a bad pastor. There are things like that all over. And so if you hear the actual story, rather than saying, oh, you just have another stupid denomination or something like that, you can say, what, where did it begin? Oh, yeah, they had, you know, church leadership that started selling seats to people to come to church or whatever it may be. Yeah, 
that was a thing at one point in time. Um, and then in this day and age of the information age, is, this is a time when we really can share orthodoxy thoroughly. You can't force feed it, but it is a oppor special opportunity for us to share the faith with people and say, what you've been looking for always has been. It might look a little different than you thought it did, but with the help of the early the apostolic fathers, the early church fathers especially, um, you can, they can see that there's this living continuity that even they can choose. Some will choose not to, but they could choose to be a part of that which you've always been looking for here in the orthodoxy. So that bringing it back from that little side note. So St. Paul writes something very important. He says, For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. And what is he talking about? Anyone. The Eucharist. Which is the body and blood of Christ. And how many Christs are there? One. And is that Christ real? And is that Eucharist real? Then those who are drawn to him and who participate in that Eucharistic life together are unified. Because Christ is real and the mystery of the Eucharist is real in the church. And so St. Paul says it so succinctly right here and beautifully. In the early church, all Christians in any given area met together to celebrate the Eucharist at the same place and at the same time. In this gathering, social, racial, and political barriers were overcome as all participated in one liturgy, offering one prayer and partaking of one bread. This principle is expressed in canon law, which is you know, the, the, the official kind of rules and of church govern, governance that come from the ecumenical councils. So this principle is expressed in canon law today by the fact that a priest may celebrate only one liturgy during a day. So we can't have, I can't, I can't have multiple liturgies here on principle. I can't have the, the Spanish-speaking liturgy and the English-speaking liturgy because then we're saying that we are divided on linguistic lines or on ethnic lines, and the church doesn't do that. Now, there might be a need in a certain area to have a particular a Greek-speaking church because of the, the many immigrants or a Spanish-speaking. Like We're starting to reach out to Spanish speakers in Los Angeles because there are a lot of people around the cathedral or Hispanics interested in orthodoxy. So we have a priest who does, they have a, ch a separate the chapel. But we can't have the early service and the late service here because only one Eucharist, there's only one Eucharist that, we, that unites us all, that we all participate in. And that, that conviction is a very real expression, a literal expression of the literal unity of the people who are united to one another in Christ. And it transcends our rational understanding and our particular, you know, dis disting distinguishing characteristics, race, and even language. If I had to move to Russia for some reason, I would, or if, even if I visited, you know, they would be serving the service in Russia, Russian, 
and I could fully participate in that service. I wouldn't think, oh, this isn't for me because it's not really, you know, it's not in English. Be the same. It would be the same thing. It's awesome. Yes. Oh, you did? And by the end of the second one, I could almost hear, like, I was really trying to pay attention to the pattern of the service. Mm -hmm. And at certain points, I could almost hear what you say along with what they say by following the yeah. service. And I could, like, infer when they were saying, like, most really Theotokos saying that, yeah. based on the way they sang it and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's like, if you come to enough liturgy and you understand the pattern, you might not hear it in your language, but you can there is now that's right because there is a language that's being spoken that's not just a verbal language the language of the liturgy of the worship itself that's inspired we would say that is inspired by the holy spirit and if you if you take your participation in it seriously then you become a you become fluent in that transcendent language you could say and you're right it's beautiful. I loved that first. It was yeah, I know. I was like, That's one of the challenges. Yeah. But then it, it's a, actually it's an important lesson for us Americans because yeah. we're used to getting it, you know, my way right away. Well, and it, it just showed me like, oh, I can feel the pattern of it. Yeah. Of the, of the worship. And the That's cool. And that was a beautiful experience to be able to feel yeah. that. Um, did, did the priest serve in Greek too? Was it Father Michael, do you know? Yeah, and he read the gospel in English, though. Okay. And he did one line, one cycle of prayers in English. Okay, yeah. But everything else was in Greek. All, everything yeah, was he's a full-on convert to orthodoxy, yeah. but he's but he's been assigned as the chaplain there, so he's learned to serve in Greek. But, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did it again. Oh, the canon, okay. You can only have one liturgy during a day. So if you have, if your church is growing, then you need to expand, build, or start a mission. So you can have another local, like, like on Whitby Island maybe or something. Um, through prayer, all things are possible. You can do it. So if circumstances necessitate that a second liturgy be celebrated in a church, it must be celebrated by a different priest and on a different altar. This may seem to be a somewhat um, roundabout approach, but it serves to underscore the principle that the community partakes of one Eucharist. Every Sunday and great feast day, the church in a given location gathers together to celebrate the Eucharist, to offer and to be offered to God in love and to receive from him the medicine of immortality. In doing so, we're united as one body. We're given the body and blood of Christ as our spiritual nourishment and our whole life is oriented toward both the cross and the kingdom that is to come. And I have a little note for myself. Oh, um, see, we've been, we've been talking a lot about the bread that we use in, uh, in our Thursday night class, but, um, we have a certain kind of bread that's called prosphor, which is an prosphor means offering. And we have people in our community who are part of our baking team. It's a really special ministry. It's one of those quiet, unseen ministries. But you can't, we can't serve the Divine Liturgy without the bread. 
And we're not in an Orthodox country. You know, from what I understand, in, in certain countries, like Orthodox countries like Greece, you can go to the bakery and you can buy the bread, the communion bread. But here, we order these little seals. They're called this, these stamps that, that put a... I wish I had one with me. I could show you. But um, they have an impression on the top. Maybe I can show you next time. And uh, it gives us kind of the guidelines for how we, we cut it and prepare it for the Divine Liturgy. And I won't go into detail on that right now because that's not the point of this class. It's just to, this session is about laying the Eucharistic framework for our practice of celebrating the mystery of the liturgy so, so often giving it such a priority. And another thing that really helped me in my own, my personal life, I came, I came from a, um, a very like non, non-traditional, non-religious, so to speak, we didn't like the word religion because we thought it just meant vain repetition. Why would you do a bunch of things that other people have already written down? Um, what we didn't realize is that we were just doing things that more modern people had written down for us. You know, We were just following a different pattern, to use that language. But uh, um, one of the things that really helped me was to come to the simple realization that Christ was, Christ was a living letter himself. His life was the letter that was read, was the story that was told. And his teaching was that which was heard and conveyed from one person to another and eventually eventually written down, but not by himself. That what Christ left the, the, the early church with was this one thing, this one practice that he instituted. Do this, you know. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you do, you do, you do proclaim my death and resurrection. So when I, when I took off my blinders, you know, and I started reading the Bible, not as like a self-help manual, but as a revelation of God's truth, I, that hit me really hard, like a wrecking ball. And I thought, oh my Lord, I need to take communion more seriously. Like I said, I need to keep Take Christ at his word. So let's see. What time are we at, you guys? 136? Okay. What we'll do is we'll read the Father's speak here, and then I'll end a little early. And then when we come back together next time, we'll do the next, the next little section, a little special study on uh, the communion of the saints. The Father's speak from the Didache. Give thanks in this manner, it says, First, over the cup, we give thanks to thee, our Father, for the holy vine of thy son, David, which thou hast made known to us through Jesus, thy son. Thine be the glory forever. Then, over the broken bread, we give thanks to thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou dost make known to us through Jesus, thy son. Thine be the glory forever. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and was gathered together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. That forever and ever in Greek like is, is the, the now and ever. Now and ever. You hear that now and ever and unto ages of ages. That's one of those little things that you hear all the time in the church. Now and ever and unto ages of ages. Why do they say ages of ages all the time? Well, that's just the literal rendering. 
Kenin kei kei tu seonon stonaonon means from and now and for and forever and from eon to eon or age to age. Just it just means forever, forever and ever. And then in some like if you hear in um, the British world, they'll say world without end. You ever heard that world without end? Um, it just means going on forever. And an age is a long time. An eon is a long time. So from age to age, forever and ever. And so, um, and also any time that we hear that, now and ever and unto ages of ages, there's usually in the liturgical life of the church, it's a cue. We use it as a little cue that something's finishing up. Every time the priest says, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Um, okay, we'll work with you on that. <laughs> amen. You say, Amen. And then the choir's turning their pages, getting to the next thing that they have to do. Yeah, and then do, 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 or whatever. Yeah. Um, I miss being a choir director. That was a fun time in my life. But, uh, um, and then also you'll hear. There's a glory, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit that the choir does. And then they'll do like a hymn. And then they'll say, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. And that's always a cue to us that they're doing the final hymn in that set. So, and of course, we're doxological. We're always trying to glorify God forever. So it's a good way for us to always finish whatever section of any service we're doing. But it's, it's kind of, it's fit into that, you know, the, the pattern of the service itself as a communication to the clergy. And before the printing press and the, you know, and the laser printer, um, you, not everyone would have their books. Like, I wouldn't have all the service texts in front of me. The choir would have their service books or the chanters. They would be singing. And so it's helpful for, and it's practical, you know, to have those little cues built into the services. But sometimes we're so deep in prayer that we miss our cues anyway. But uh, anyway, so um, the quote continues, Let none eat or drink of this Eucharist of yours except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For on this point, the Lord said, Do not give what is unholy to the dogs. Whew. That's a hard way to end. And then St. Nicholas Cavasolas says, It was necessary that the remedy for my weakness be God and become man. For were he God only, he would not be united to us. Or how could he become our feast? On the other hand, if Christ were no more than what we are, his feast would have been ineffectual. By his divinity, he is able to exalt and transcend our human nature and to transform it into himself. It is clear then that Christ infuses himself into us and mingles himself with us. And so it's another means by which we become by grace what he is by nature. And there's no, there's no confusion between what is created and what is uncreated, between God and what is not God, or between God and man. But there's a very real entry into the divine life of the 
the love of God, the persons of the Trinity that's available to us because God became what we are. When he became what we are, he united the uncreated with the created, the divinity and the humanity, um, and overcame the barrier that, that had been that had, that had begun um, through our sundering of ourselves from our God, from our very life itself. So that's what we, we begin to taste, that we begin to experience. And it's not a magical thing. It's not like, you know, it's not a magic trick or some kind of like emotional high that we're going for. Emotion, emotions are fleeting. What we care about is what's real. So our emphasis and a lot of times what I'm trying to talk about in talking about the, the sacraments is that what we're doing is not, not just doing, accomplishing a task or seeking to have some kind of experience emotionally, but we're participating in something real. Real. That's important. God is real. You know, Christ is the same yesterday, today, today, and forever. And that keeps us sane in an insane world. And the same with the beauty of the tradition of the church, which is so stable, so beautiful and creative, but also stable. It provides a witness to the stability of our life in Christ that we need in our decadence and in our, in our own insanity, our waywardness. So... It helps keep us sane in that way as well. So, all right, well, we'll end there for today. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. It's good to be with you today. And I'm sorry that we had to cancel and I've been off for the last couple of weeks with, with travels and things. Um, we should get back into our normal schedule. Although... Dormition, the Feast of Dormition lands on a Monday, which means that we have um, an evening service on a Sunday, which is an important service that we do in the church. And um, that's Sunday the 14th. We're going to have Great Vespers here at the church at 630 for um, the Dormition, which is the falling asleep of the Theotokos. That's an interesting feast for you guys um, who are learning about Orthodoxy. But uh, it's one of the older feasts of the church. And I'm saying that there will be no class that day because I'm going to try to encourage everyone to come to the service that evening. I don't know about you guys. You could try, you know. um, We'll also, we'll stream it if you need to, but... I would just like everyone to participate in it if they can. Um, Let's talk later. All right. So thank you. God bless.